It is an absolute blessing to be here with you guys. Uh, if you're already part of HCPN, you know how important what you're doing is. If you're not, let me tell you how important it is. Uh, from exponential standpoint, we get to watch what's happening all over the country with different networks, different denominations. The collaborative nature of what's happening here, we're holding up at Exponential as an example for what we need in the other cities in, in America. So uh, it isn't just what you're doing in Houston, you're, you're demonstrating and modeling what we need to see happening uh, at a whole lot of other places. The second reason I'm thrilled to be here, uh, the topic they've asked me to talk about on personal calling and mobilization of people. Is everybody hearing me okay? All right, um, felt a little echoey. Uh, this topic is uh, probably what I'm most passionate about. If I could pick any topic to talk about, today's the topic I'd prefer to talk about. Uh, let me explain why. Uh, I am an engineer by trade, spent about 15 years in the government at a premier engineering organization there uh, in the nuclear Navy, and um, I uh, got called out of that into ministry full-time. And I've actually, uh, as difficult as that journey was, uh, had quite the privilege of different people in my life on the journey. Um, I was called out of the marketplace into a local church, New Life Christian Church. Uh, it's one of the founding churches of Exponential. We've planted 280 churches. Um, I initially was the executive pastor there. And the reason I bring that up is we're going to talk about a culture of mobilization today. And I don't want you thinking, oh, this is a theorist that's leading some parachurch ministry. Um, I continue to be on staff at New Life Christian Church. Um, I was responsible for uh, the mobilization of volunteers there in the executive pastor role. Um, ended up that uh, I've had the blessing of being part of Exponential and founding Exponential. But uh, through God's hand, uh, a number of people in my life, who knows who Bob Buford is here, Leadership Network, Halftime. Uh, wrote the book Halftime. Uh, Bob became a mentor to me about 14 years ago. I was the age of his only son who died. Um, so I had a front row seat uh, to a marketplace person who, very engaged in, in kingdom things, uh, has encouraged the calling journey in me for years. And then a guy named Oz Guinness, anybody know Oz Guinness, wrote the book The Call. He's, he's one of the most brilliant people in our generation. So uh, he spent several years coaching me. Uh, the content we're going to talk about today uh, is from a couple of different books, a book called More and a book Made for More. And Oz Guinness, uh, I'm going to refer to him multiple times today. He's a really good thinker, and he is the reason it took me five years to write my first book, like because it was just so much work that uh, in, the, in the coaching part of it. So... Um, I am passionate about this topic just because my own journey is there, and I'm going to share elements of that. Um, and secondly, uh, you're all here because you want to see church multiplication and church planting happening. Um, from I, I would say from Exponential's perspective, one of the top three issues that we have got to crack is this issue of a culture of mobilization. I'm going to suggest to you that there's a difference between a culture of volunteerism, and a culture of mobilization. And until we break the nut on that, we're, we're not going to get where we need to be. And all of you are culture shapers. And the good and the bad in that is you're the culture shaper of a culture of volunteerism. But you've got to get to a point of being the culture shaper of a culture of 
of mobilization. That makes sense? Um, I'm hoping, uh, in going through this today, uh, I'm wanting three things to happen. Um, I'm going to partly be wearing the hat of a volunteer. I spent the first uh, 20 years of my Christian journey as a volunteer in churches, okay? Um, and let me suggest to you, let me jump to today. I come before you today, I have the blessing every day of waking up, living in the sweet spot of my calling. I, li I live the life of a billionaire paycheck to paycheck. And I, God willing, health-wise, I have no intention of retiring. If you want to know if someone is living in the sweet spot of their calling, ask them their retirement plans. I hate to be critical. If you have retirement plans, you are not living in the sweet spot of your personal calling. Okay? So my first hope is that you will, through the message, see through the lens of the of the volunteers that are in your church. I spent 20-some years in churches who were great churches. They shaped me, they molded me, none of which could help me get to where I am today on living in the sweet spot of my personal calling. It happened outside the bounds of the local church, and that breaks my heart. That's partly why I'm passionate for it. It's why, for me, we've got to change the culture from volunteerism to mobilization. The second thing I want is language is really important. Let me suggest to you when I ask the question, how many people are living in the sweet spot of their unique personal calling? There's 150 people in here that hear those words, and it means at least 100 different things to the 150 people in the room. When I say unique personal calling, you have an orientation of what that means. I'm going to suggest to you it doesn't mean, wow, that person is an accountant in the marking place and they just know numbers are way better than me and we've got them serving as the head of the finance committee. Your perspective might be that they're living in the sweet spot of their unique calling. Doesn't mean it's the case. So language is important. I want you to think through some of the language I'm going to uh, use today. And then uh, finally, I, I just want to challenge you. I'm hoping there's at least one thing today. You are the culture shapers for this culture of mobilization. So I, I really would uh, honestly be honored if after today, my email address is todd, T-O-D-D, at exponential.org. I would love to hear some feedback of one thing you're challenged by today, one thing you feel like, wow, we need to look at changing that one thing in our context. I'm going to go through a bunch of content today, but I don't want you to get out of here without being challenged by uh, at least one thing. So uh, let me also apologize in advance. I have this huge pet peeve on Sunday morning, like when the words for the music don't line up with the songs. Like when I was the executive pastor, like that would drive me insane. Um, I think I'm going to not advance the slides at least 20 times while we're talking today. <laughs> so somebody in the front row flag me if it looks like the slides aren't, aren't matching up. See, I'm already going the wrong way, I think. 
All right, here we go. Here's what I want you to think about. Um, think about the history of the world for a minute and think about volunteerism. I'm going to suggest to you that if you add up the cumulative number of volunteer hours that are mobilized by the U.S. church in one week, 320,000 churches, add up all the hours of volunteerism, multiply it by 52 for one year. The church collectively mobilizes more volunteers than the next nine organizations after it. The church is the best volunteer mobilization platform in the history of the world. The church knows how to, we, we can argue over how, but how to get volunteers to, uh, to do things. Now think about this, if you could take all of those hours, all of the volunteer hours from the past year, just assign a minimum wage to them, not even a big salary, minimum wage, guess what you have? One of the larger economies in the world. The volunteer hour equivalent of the U.S. church makes us one of the largest economies in the world. Now, here's the question that we've got to, uh, to ask. Um, to what end? Like, what difference is it really making? And now's where I want to make it personal to the volunteers in your church, okay? I'm going to suggest to you that simultaneously we're mobilizing the largest army of volunteers in the history of the world, and simultaneously we have an army of restless discontented, unfulfilled people who are searching for significance, unfortunately, in all the wrong places. And we're going to talk about that gap a little bit today. Um, I, I think uh, I'm a local church guy. I love the local church. I told you I'm still on staff there. But the first thing I want us to do is the reality check to realize the largest mobilization of volunteers in the history of the world, one of the largest economies in the world, and there is something wrong with our system of volunteerism. It's actually not mobilizing people uh, in their unique sweet spot of calling. Um, here's what I would like to do. Uh, we're going to take literally two minutes right now at your table. I want you to have a two-minute conversation at your table, and the, and the assignment is really simple. You're going to try to get a consensus, plus or minus 10 percent, 0 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, on what percentage of Christ followers, average Christ followers in churches, are living in the unique sweet spot of their personal calling. And it's just approximate. I don't want decimal points. So. What percentage of Christ followers are living in the unique sweet spot of their personal calling? Two minutes. All right, let's come back together. If you could not get consensus, then one person at the table gets to pick the number. And here's what I would like you to do. One person from each table stand up that's got the number. Just stand up. I'm not going to embarrass you either, so just stand up. One person from each table with the number. All right, Here, here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to call out the number 
and then you'll sit down, like in, in this case, uh, anybody who said, uh, what was the question? It was 10% who do or was it the percent that didn't that I asked? The ones that are, okay? So anybody that said 90% uh, sit down. 80% sit down. 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. So I guess less than 10 is the only other option, right? So less than 10. So just think about what you're seeing around the room. This represents the leading church population in Houston. And we're, we're as a consensus agreeing, we might not be agreeing to decimal point, but we're agreeing that a large, you can all sit down, there's a large percent of Jesus followers who are not living in the sweet spot of their personal calling. I'm not from Houston, but I think like with no pun intended, say, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> like, that's a major problem. Just imagine the impact for every 1% increase in that number. Just every 1% increase. It's a profound, uh, a profound change. I'm going to suggest to you, if I get these slides right, I'm going to suggest for this presentation, let's just assume that 99% of Jesus followers aren't living within the sweet spot of their personal calling. Let's talk just briefly about what's the consequence. Let me ask you this, there's a, there's a series of consequences. What does it mean for church staff? I, I got bad news for you. If you're multi-staff, you got multiple staff that are not living in the sweet spot of their personal calling. And let me ask you this, if your staff aren't living in the sweet spot of their personal calling, why in the world would you think they could lead other people to live in the sweet spot of their personal calling? It starts with our own staff. And I'm going to suggest to you, I get to keep falling back on, I was an executive pastor, I hired a lot of staff, okay? And I'm going to suggest to you, we had a formula, and it was like five C's character and compatibility and competency, and I always had my bias, okay? My bias was competency. It drove me crazy. If I couldn't get eight hours out of eight hours, but everybody's got their bias, okay? And when I was an executive pastor, I hadn't been through this journey of calling. I couldn't even define what the sweet spot of personal calling was at the time. But I'm going to confess to you as an executive pastor, I didn't have the unique personal calling of a person. If I'm really candid with you, it wasn't in my top 10. Like, I wanted them to be called, but called to what? I wanted them called to our vision. Not necessarily called to the masterpiece design of calling that God has in their life. And that issue of unity, of lining up a person's calling with what we need, We've got to flip the equation from Home Depot's old motto, well, let's say it the reverse. Our churches have an orientation of we can do it, you can help. We got to flip it. You can do it. How do we help you do what God's uh, made for your, for your life? Let me, um, let me use the example this way. 
we're going to bake something, all right? So here's the question. Out on the counter, I'm baking, and I have flour, water, sugar, chocolate chips, and a dash of salt. What am I making? Chocolate chip cookies. But guess what? You know how many other things you can make with those ingredients? Lots of other things, okay? Here's what I want you to think about. Bridge into the parable of the, uh, the, parable of the talents. As a church leader, you're, you're the chef, okay? And here's what I want you to think. You've got a recipe. You've got to find the ingredients to make this thing you want to make. I need some chocolate chips. I need some flour. I need some water. You're trying to recruit volunteers to fulfill your recipe to make the thing you're wanting to make. Now, this is really a dumb thing to say, but let's say that those chocolate chips, God made those chocolate chips for a really special purpose. Like, these are God-ordained chocolate chips. Like, these are chocolate chips they are the only chocolate chips like them in the history of the world. There's never been other chocolate chips like these, okay? And God has plans for these chocolate chips. And along comes you as a leader, and you need some chocolate chips to make your cookies. What are you going to do? You're going to convince them that they got to put their chocolate chips into your cookies. Do you get the paradox of the problem we've got on mobilization? Just let it sink in. Don't forget the chocolate chips, okay? Like the culture of volunteerism starts with we have a vision, we have a plan. We got to get 932 people into our children's ministry this week. It doesn't matter that they're uniquely a masterpiece of God ordained for something else. We got to fill up our children's ministry this week. And trust me, as an executive pastor, I get the tension. We got to operate this thing that we're running. But the challenge we've got to maneuver through, the good news is this the churches we plant, we can think about how to do the operating system a little different on the churches we start. And we've got to do that. That's where it's got to start. We've got to start thinking about the churches we plant. How are we creating a culture of mobilization from the beginning and not a culture of, uh, of volunteerism? All right. Uh, parable of the talents then. Um, it was an interesting thing when I was right when I spent the five years writing the book on calling. I kept having this thing with, I had read an article about someone who literally was like putting money in their mattress, like stuffing money in their mattress. They're afraid to put it in the bank and afraid to spend it. And so this person's got like a million or dollars or more in their mattress through their life, and they died. And it was just by chance somebody found the, the money in the mattress. And it's like, here's the thing, as crazy as that story is, like, you could do burying the treasure in the backyard. How about the one talent person 
You know, you got the five talent, three talent people that go and risk and do something. The one talent digs a hole and puts it in the ground. Now, here's what I, I, I want to ask is if 99% of Christ followers aren't living in the sweet spot of their unique calling, can we agree that we've got a, a, a talent burying problem going on? We're not using talent the way God ordained for it to be used. Now, here's where it gets really personal, is in the parable of the talents, you've got a one talent, three talent, five talent. The three and five talent are called the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. What's, what's said to the one talent person? You wicked and lazy servant, okay? I'm going to make the assumption right now that, um, that neither the volunteers that we're leading or the leaders who are leading them, us, you, I'm going to assume we're not lazy and wicked. And yet, we are leading the talents and the callings of people as one talent people. We, we've got to kind of call that what it is. We are leading and operating in a way like one talent people in the way we're doing this. But I trust we're not actually wicked and lazy. So how do you resolve, how do we reconcile that we've got a talent burying problem? We're functioning like one talent, but we're not lazy and wicked. Now, let me suggest to you that, and I'm not going to pick on a specific movement, but we're 35 years into a church growth movement that the operating system, the culture that we're all indoctrinated into, the operating system gives us what we're getting. It is perfectly aligned to, to do what it's doing. We are in a programmatic operating system. We add by programs, and programs have to be fed. What is the favorite food of a program? It's called a volunteer. And here's the problem. Programs don't care what brand of chocolate chips they're eating. They don't care if it's these unique, one-of-a-kind, ever-in-the-history-of-the-world chocolate chip. They just need the chocolate chips. So our challenge is the culture we have is a programmatic culture that needs to consume volunteers. So where, where the reality of where we are is we have to realize we can't change that overnight. I'm not here to make you feel bad and say change it overnight. Like, but we've got to at least be aware that the way we're leading, we are leading volunteers as one-talent leaders. If your number one motivation isn't to figure out that's a masterpiece work of God, the only kind of chocolate chips in the history of the world, i got to figure out the unique place for that person. If that's not how we're thinking, then we're leading as one-talent individuals when it comes to calling. Let's at least be aware of that. Let's, let's not... Let's not wait till we get to heaven to get called out for it. Let's at least feel the tension now on it. All right, so for today, uh, I've, I've said it. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to assume the best that the issue is we've got to really go after uh, culture changing. And uh, that's what I'm hoping we're going to be able to do. Let me briefly say uh, the, the, I'm sorry. Uh, one of the models that we use or frameworks we use at Exponential is a very simple 
Whenever I say the culture of something, what we mean by that at Exponential is the alignment of your core values with the language you use, with the behaviors you practice. So just think about that for a minute. You can say that you value something. You can say that you value disciple-making. But if you never talk about it and people aren't practicing it, it's not really a value. The only time something's really a value is when there's an alignment between the actual behaviors, the language and stories you're telling, and the value you're saying is a value. So as we go through some of the rest of the language in this, just be thinking through those three lenses, value, language, behavior. I'm going to encourage you, one of the things that's challenged me from a church leadership standpoint, language is so important, the language and vocabulary we use. Start, when you leave here, start thinking about the words you actually use. Think, volunteer. What, what if, what would you do if you had to, if you abolish the word volunteer from your vocabulary? Like, what word would you use if you weren't using volunteer? And I would start thinking through just some of the vocabulary that's used. This idea of unique calling, everyday missionaries, everyday mission fields. There's an entire, if, if, if I say to you, man, the mission of our church is disciple-making by mobilizing everyday missionaries to the everyday mission fields where they work, live, and play. That's a completely different thing for the average volunteer than to say, hey, we've, we've got all these program things and we need 13 new volunteers in such and such. The inspirational part of, of the volunteer part, I'm going to suggest to you that if we go back to the, we have an army of restless, discontented uh, folks, it's partly because we're not taking that orientation of you can do it, how do we help you uh, do your thing? For sake of time, I'm, I'm actually going to not go much into my story. Here's what I want you to know in my journey from a volunteer to being in ministry. Um, I have the benefit looking back, um, I kind of break my life up into four quarters. So there was, I became a Christian at 21. So there, my first quarter was, you know, kind of not the right motivations leading up to becoming a Christian. And I had my first kind of conversion surrender experience. Um, my second quarter led up to 35. So it was, it was about 21 to 35. I had what's called an early halftime experience. Halftime meaning um, I, I was very successful. I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I'm conquering hills. And all of a sudden, 33 to 35, I'm wrestling with, is this what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? Like, what, what should I be doing? And and it was that two-year wrestling match that uh, led to coming into ministry. 35 to 50 for me was a was it was simply shifting the conquering. If if 21 to 35 was conquering the corporate side for me, 35 to 50 was conquering in the ministry side for me. And then 50 plus for me is very much the living in the sweet spot of calling. I would tell you that I spent from about 38 through 48, from my, when I was 38 to 48, it was a 10-year journey for me of actually discovering my calling. Um, I, I'm not going to take the time right now. Bob Buford, who mentored me for 15 years, 
Bob used a thing called a, his wallet card. He could pull out of his pocket a wallet card that is an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper you'd unfold. And on that wallet card, he had what he called his three plus 10. Three leaders he was significantly investing in, including his family, 10 other leaders he was investing in, and then a statement of his calling, his operating values, his other things. Um, when I was 38, I couldn't fill out that wallet card. He made me have a wallet card when I was being mentored by him. And progressively over that 10 years, the clarity on calling got more and more and more clear to where now by the age of 50, it's like it's a yes-no filter for me. That wallet card, I still take out my wallet card every month. It's got a list of names that I'm investing in, the projects I'm working on, and it's got the articulation of my calling. And here's what I'm able to do. When I tell you I'm living in the sweet spot of my calling, I've done life planning with probably 30 different leaders across the country over the last few years. It's a two-day intense process of looking into their life. The number one thing that people want clarity on at this point when they're coming into a, a life planning process is what I'd call a yes-no filter. What am I going to say yes to? What am I going to say no to in life? And let me suggest to you that the more clarity you get on your unique personal calling, it is your yes-no filter. So that's probably the biggest thing that has changed for me in the, in the journey is going from doing lots of things to doing few, it's what I'd say the 50 plus fourth quarter part for me is fewer things. But I can tell you, I am a nut about saying no to things that don't line up with my unique sweet spot. That makes sense? The, uh, in my journey over those years, I had, uh, a significant turning point that really plays into the language on calling. Um, when Bob Buford first connected with me, uh, Bob wanted me to come to work for him full-time, and I was doing exponential. I loved what I was doing. I did not want to go to work with him full-time. And so Bob said to me, um, he said, Todd, here's the deal. Here's what I want. I want you to invest 20% of your time but I want you in that 20% of your time working with me to be 100% in your sweet spot. He said, I don't want you to do anything that's not in your sweet spot for the 20% of your time you're working with me. And here's the context. I loved what I was doing at the time. I'm leading exponential. I wouldn't say I was in the sweet spot of my calling, but I loved what I was doing. I was happy. What would happen if someone said to you, I want you to work with me and I want you to be 100% in your sweet spot. I don't want you to do anything. For me, here's what that meant. I thought, wow, I'm not going to have to do travel reimbursements and fill out administrative forms. Like, Bob's secretary will do all that for me. I'm, and, and so my first gut reaction when he asked me that was, yes, I'm like, I'm in. Like, a job that's 100% in, in my sweet spot. Now, here's what happened. Immediately, like, I'm, yes, I'm excited. And then I'm thinking, ugh, why, like, how would I, I got responsibility in strength funders. I'm like, how would I know? Like, how would somebody hold me accountable, even for 20% of my time, to be 100% in my sweet spot? And as an engineer with responsibility, I'm thinking, I don't even know how to hold myself, I'm realizing I don't know how to hold myself accountable to that. I wouldn't know how to know 
if I'm 100% in my sweet spot just one day a week. Now think how bad that is. I wouldn't know if I was in my sweet spot. And I'm already in ministry. I'm on staff at a church. And I, I couldn't tell you if one day a week I'm 100% in my sweet spot. And here's what happened. Instantly a third emotion. I said, oh, why in the world am I getting so excited to spend 20% of my time in my sweet spot? Like, that's crazy. Like, I'm excited. Let me say it the reverse. I'm excited to spend 80% of my time not in my sweet spot? Like, that's like the definition of insanity. Who wants to spend 80% of their time not in their... In their, is anybody here want to spend 80% of their time not in their sweet spot? Now, here's the deal. Go back to the stat that only 1% of Christians, if best, find it. There is a longing to function in our sweet spot. And if the average person isn't, they don't know how to articulate that gap between the natural longing. Bob Buford just put words to it for me by asking the question. I never would have thought how to articulate it, but this idea of hey, I want you 20% of your time in your sweet spot. So here's what happened. As an engineer, uh, you wouldn't know I was an engineer, would you? Um, here's what I did as an engineer. That got me really thinking, like, so what is a sweet spot? I'm like, literally, what's a sweet spot? And so I start doing the research on what are sweet spots, and who would have known? Like, do you know that there are thousands of sweet spots in nature? Like, God created the world with sweet spots. This room has an acoustic sweet spot. My glasses have an acoustic sweet spot. My eardrums have acoustic sweet spots. If I had a gun with a scope, it would have a, an acoustic or a, it would have a sweet spot on it. Literally, God has made thousands of sweet spots. They're everywhere, okay? And here's the key. If you were to boil down a sweet spot and say, of the thousands of sweet spots, whether it's a sweet spot on a baseball bat, the sweet spot on a tennis racket, like what are the common denominators between all sweet spots? And here's the deal. Every single sweet spot God's created has three things in common. There's a design, there's a purpose, and there's a position, design, purpose, position. That got me wondering, like, wow, so do people have sweet spots that are built around a design, a purpose, and a position? That um, naturally takes us, let me go back to the garden with Adam and Eve now, okay? We think of the fall with sin. I'm going to suggest to you Look what actually happened with original sin in the garden. We, as a consequence, we lost three things. We lost our identity in God. We lost our purpose with God. Physically, the work that was being done, we're kicked out, now you're going to toil and work. And we physically lost the position with God. We lost our identity. What is identity? It's a design. We lost our purpose, and we lost our position. I'm going to suggest to you, as weird as it sounds, Adam and Eve had a sweet spot, an eternal sweet spot with God. And in the fall, Adam and Eve lost their sweet spot, the eternal sweet spot. And we get the impact of that to this day. 
we won't actually recover the eternal sweet spot till we're on the other side of death. And on this side of death, us in this room and all the people we try to lead, we will experience restless discontent because of those three things we lost in the fall. So th three questions. I, I'm going to suggest to you that one of the reasons Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life is one of the best-selling books in the history of the world, it's because men and women ask three key questions. Who am I created to be? What am I made to do? And where am I supposed to do it? If, if, if you just want to think about unique, now that when I say sweet spot of unique personal calling, what we're really talking about is helping people find the overlap of where their unique identity, who God's uniquely made them to be, intersects with what they're uniquely made to do, and then where they're supposed to do it. Um, if we were just to take a more general definition of calling for a minute, and like, again, if I ask 150 people, I'm going to get 150 different definitions. I am going to suggest to you that one of the important biblical parts of calling is the word longing, okay? If we go back to the garden, the separation that happened, God has a longing for us that He sends His Son to reconcile, and we have a longing for an eternal relationship with Him. Calling is this idea of reconciling the longing that we have. And I'm going to make the distinction between a longing and a desire. A longing is something you don't it long. You don't have control over resolving a longing in the short term. A desire is something you can instantly try to get gratify. So just think about the difference in a longing and a desire. We aren't going to resolve the longing, fully resolve it till we're in eternity that we have. That longing produces desires. And when we aren't helping people live in the sweet spot of their calling, they'll find a surrogate thing to go after. Does that make sense? The, the fact that they have unresolved longings that we can't change will cause them to have unhealthy desires that they can feel like they're doing something about but aren't really healthy. So if we really start pressing into what is calling then, um, when Oz Guinness was coaching me through the five years of writing, uh, he just hammered with me, said, Todd, here's what you need to understand. Church historians, when the Bible talks about calling, almost all the time, it's talking about what, what church historians would call a general or a common calling. And general or common means it's common to all Christians everywhere all the time. So our common or our general calling all of us in this room share. Our secondary calling or our unique calling, when we're talking about our sweet spot of unique personal calling, it's actually the secondary calling. It's the calling that makes us uniquely different from everybody else in the room. So primary calling ties us all together on one thing. Unique or secondary calling makes us all different to play our role as the mosaic of the body. Here's the metaphor to use. The, the idea, I don't know if you can see the boat in the picture, but picture you're out in a rowboat, two oars, you're on a river with a rowboat, two oars. The two oars are primary calling, secondary calling. What happens 
if you don't put either or in the water? You drift. And where do you drift? You drift with culture. You drift with wherever the current goes. I'm going to suggest to you that if the normative measure of what we produce in church is a cultural Christian, a cultural Christian has neither or in the water. It's why a cultural Christian doesn't give us necessarily the witness that we, that we need. What happens when you only put one oar in the water? You go in a circle. You have to put two oars in the water to go somewhere. So the idea of primary and secondary calling, we've got to get them both uh, into the water. Here's the good news. The primary calling, uh, just think be, do, go. Who am I created to be? What am I made to do? Where am I to do it? Here's the good news about primary calling or common calling. God has already given it to us. You don't have to discover it. I'm going to articulate it two ways. The first way is we are to be disciples of Jesus filled with His fullness who carry that fullness to others as we make disciples wherever we are. Be, do, go. Be disciples who make disciples wherever we go. Think about it this way. If God calls you in your unique calling to go halfway around the world somewhere, pack your bags and go like He did Abraham, for what purpose is He sending you halfway around the world? It isn't to do your unique thing. It is to be a disciple who makes a disciple where you are. He happens to give you the unique gifting so that you can contribute uniquely to that, but it's still for the purpose of the primary. So do we need to go halfway around the world to do primary calling? If we come back to this language of being everyday missionaries with everyday mission fields where we already live, work, study, and play, that's all that's needed for primary calling. We don't have to go anywhere. It's already right where, where we are. The second way, if you want to articulate primary calling, is that we are called to be children of God who honor and glorify Him in all we do, wherever we are. I would suggest both of those, the discipleship one and the, and the child of God, tie all of us together, and we don't have to go figure out what they are. All right, secondary calling, though, it's still God-given. Everyone's given a masterpiece design, but now we have to, we have to figure it out. I'm going to suggest to you one of the best places, Ephesians 2.10, for we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, there's the design element, to do good works and deeds that He prepared in advance for us to do, there's your purpose statement, that we are to walk in. I love that, that we're to walk in, because it's the go, because God didn't make us unique to be a trophy on the wall. He made us to be walking in the uniqueness with the good works and deeds that, that we've got. The challenge on secondary calling is that it's, uh, sorry, it, it's more of an entrepreneurial thing, meaning it's a journey of discovery. I told you it took 10 years for me to get more and more clarity on it. And this, we're back to the challenge on the culture of volunteerism versus mobilization, most of us don't have the patience in the way we're doing church, and the programmatic approach doesn't give us years to help people discover this. 
And here's the challenge. We want to fall back on, let's just get them serving. If we can just get them serving, they can discover it. And, and I, I do think we've got to get people serving. Don't get me wrong. But I can't give you, I'm a, I'm a student of personal calling, okay? I can't give you very many examples where just getting somebody serving is actually giving them what they need to help them to, to figure out the uniqueness that God's put into them. All right, Oz Guinness, uh, Oz Guinness also, I want you to imagine when I started writing this book on calling, um, we sat down the first time over coffee, I really respect them, and Oz says to me two things. These were additional turning points. It's why it took me five years to write a book on calling. Oz said, he looks at me in his, his uh, accent from England and he says, please tell me that you're not writing another self-centered, narcissistic, self-help book to help people feel better about themselves. And I, I'm like, Oz, like, I just am trying to reply to, I feel like God's telling me to write a book on this from my story. And he's like, well, here's the deal. Everything out there, it's all about self-help and people feeling better. And he used, he said, what happens is people focus on the secondary calling and it's all about making themselves happy in the secondary unique calling and they lose sight of the primary calling, which led to the pivotal thing for me. He said, here's what you need to realize. He said, the pursuit of unique calling, when you go after this entrepreneurial journey of unique calling, if it isn't the secondary rooted in the primary of making disciples of others, if it's just pursuit of secondary calling, it is a form of idolatry. If it's not tied to the bigger common uh, calling. So we've got to be careful that as we're, as we're going after things. Uh, I'm going to skip a couple of slides. Maybe. The, the what's holding us back question, uh, I want to just dwell on for a minute. So I want to split this into personal roadblocks and church roadblocks. So the, these somewhat come out of my own life and then what uh, some of the people I've coached. So for me, there were three big personal roadblocks. Um, the first one I just call noise and confusion. Um, when I got into that couple of year wrestling match where I was trying to listen and discover, um, there was so much background noise in my life going on. Um, and I, I'm not kidding when I would say those little commercials where there's like an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder, I'm literally like almost hearing voices. Like I'm like, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to take this step. And then I'm hearing this voice like, you're a nut. You're crazy. This is going to kill your family. You're... And so... If I, if I look at John 10.10, that Jesus came that we'd have life and have it more abundantly, right before that is the thief comes to, to destroy. We need to believe. Let me ask you this. What bigger threat is there to Satan than individual Christians discovering their unique personal calling and leaning into it? We have to expect the spiritual warfare getting in the way. Like, it's it, the lies of Satan. Um, the scorecard part, let's just be realistic. I'm going to tell you, I came out of the marketplace 20 years ago. I don't make as much money 20 years later 
forget inflation, as I did 20 years ago. I'm ministry for 20 years. I did, this is the definition of insanity. I'm wrestling with, do I take a step? And I would take out a piece of paper, two columns, life as it is, life as I think it'll be. And it ne I did it like 60 times. I'm not kidding you. Like, and it never added up. I, I don't know why I kept doing it because every time I would do it, there'd be this whole list on this side and like nothing on this side. And it's like, this is like just crazy. So in reality, what I had to put to, to death, this is where I'm going to say, I had my first important conversion at age 21, saying yes to Jesus. Now here's the, I want you to not miss this. In my journey, and I think it's like a lot of other people, my second conversion came at the surrender of this. And this was a way harder surrender than the surrender to Jesus. It is easy to get people to say yes to Jesus. For some reason, it's a whole lot easier or harder to, to get the surrender that's required to live into your, your call, calling part, which leads to the talent burying. It's the, at the personal level, it's the denial. If you've, if you've gone through school and college, and let's just be honest, college doesn't help you identify your be, do, go. It doesn't help you answer the three questions. You get out into the working world, think, think of it this way, as you're growing up, I did this with our kids, as they're growing up, we're focused on the do. Man, I got one son who's really good with sports and one who's good with music, I got to get them doing those things. I didn't put nearly enough time into the identity question. And when they go off to school, school doesn't help them with identity, if anything, school's backwards on identity at this point, okay? So what happens when a kid comes out of college now? They've gotten good at doing something, and their next question is go. Where am I going to do it? So they, the world will equip them in do and go, but not be. If you want to know why people have midlife crises, they get out into the working world, and at age 40, they really don't know who they are. They've never gotten their hands around the be part. And what we need to embrace as church leaders is the world is shaping the be, do, go. It is. It's shaping it all around us. The opportunity that we, and it, not in a healthy way, the opportunity we have is we've got to get into the shaping the be, do, go. If I go to the church roadblocks, let me just make sure we started a little bit late, but I want to, should I, when should I be ending? I want to honor everybody's time. That's fine. Um, I'm going to, I'll make the presentation package. I'll put it online for anybody that wants it. Um, I'm going to jump ahead real quick. Just today, I love Ed Stetzer. We're close friends. An article came out by Ed Stetzer today titled, Is Your Church Full of Customers or Owners? Okay. I want you to read it. Get it and read it. I love Ed. The article misses the mark. It, it, here, here's the deal. No, and I'll tell Ed too. It, 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 when you hear, is your church full of customers or owners, what do you want? I want owners, right? And if you read the article, it, it, go back to the chocolate chip cookies. That's our orientation in church, okay? We want to move people from being consumers and customers to owning what? 
owning our vision. We can do it, you can help. We have got to flip that around. What we've got to get people doing, let me ask you this, when you, have, when you love doing something, when you're doing something that you're really good at, when it feels important, when, when you're in that be, do, go, does anybody need to convince you to take ownership of something? You don't have to be convinced of anything. Look what we're doing in the church. We're trying to convince people of something that might be contrary to the masterpiece design God's given them. Shame on us. That's a behavior of a one-talent um, leader thing. I'm on my last slide. Um, this is what I want to end with. If, um, if we go back to John 10.10 10 for a minute, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Some translations say that you might have life and take hold of it more abundantly. If you look at the Greek, don't miss the subtlety here. You can have life by saying yes to Jesus. To take hold of abundant life is active, okay? Use the marriage analogy. You can walk down the aisle and say your vows and have a marriage. It says nothing about the quality of the marriage. It says nothing about the intimacy of the marriage. If you want to have an abundant marriage, you have to take hold of it. You have to actively go after it. Does that make sense? That's the challenge and the opportunity we have. If we want people to take hold of abundant living, and to do that, they got to live in the sweet spot of their unique calling. If you want a family in your church, an entire church family that's living in their sweet spot, that's living abundantly, we've got to get them in their sweet spot.